0: canva talking presentations record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere anytime start designing today at canva.com designed for work this is design
1: matters with debbie Milmer from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jake Barton about how he became a media designer and about how collaborative storytelling can work for museums. It's not a technique. It is a commitment when you're gathering that many stories, when you're opening up yourself as a museum, as a platform. And it doesn't just create an amazing exhibit experience. It literally changes the institution. Here's Debbie
0: Millman. Museums and public spaces work hard to get people inside their doors. Designer Jake Barton takes it to the next level and draws people further into the space they're already in. Barton is the founder and principal of Local Projects, a design firm that uses technology to connect people to their surroundings and to each other. Local Projects uses smartphones and interactive screens to peel back the layers of a site And they also add new layers by asking visitors to share their opinions and stories and memories. Barton made his name through his designs for StoryCorps, the Oral History Project. More recently, he designed the algorithm arranging the names for the September 11th Memorial. Jake Barton, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Jake, I understand that you're a native New Yorker.
1: I am indeed, born and bred.
0: Same here. There oh, are right? many of us. Yes, yeah. yes. And you're now living in Harlem. That's right. So you were born in Brooklyn. That's right. You've lived in Harlem, so you've lived in Brooklyn and Manhattan. What about any of the other boroughs?
1: No, lots of time traveling and biking and exploring. So, but just living in those two. But it's quite a travel when you grow up in Brooklyn. I don't know if this is still the case, but they used to refer to Manhattan as the city. Yes, And you could see it from afar, right? This glistening skyline that sometimes you would visit. And as you got older and older, you could make your way there all by yourself. But, I mean, just watching the city transform has been completely a radical experience.
0: So, Jacob, you also a digital native because I read in print magazine that they described you as a kind of hip poindexter.
1: (laughs) I do remember that. I would say I straddle between those who consider themselves digital natives. I had the original Apple II. I didn't get the Apple I, but I did have the Apple II, and I was programming way back when I was in fifth and sixth and seventh grade. Uh, But I left that world on and off throughout my childhood and young adulthood doing theater. So I was doing all these other types of activities that involved the humanities and storytelling and most of all social activities that lots of groups would do together. So I can both see the allure and the effectiveness that technology can offer people, but I also understand the limitations and even the drawbacks to technology.
0: So you went to college at Northwestern University, where you majored in performance studies. I guess Mm -hmm. that's because of your early interest in theater. Yeah. But I understand that after you graduated college, you wanted to be a doctor. That's right, yeah. So, So how did you...
1: So I had a crazy... At that point, not even midlife crisis, right? I'm like How 22. <laughs> and 20. I'd been doing theater as like my primary identifier, like I'm the theater
0: guy. Well, did you want to be an actor?
1: No, no, no. I want to do direct. I want to direct and I want to design. So I was doing set design and I'd been doing it since I was 14. So it's like more than a third of my life. And I had graduated and I got ostensibly the dream job. I was working on Broadway. I was working at the Guthrie Theater and all these amazing productions. And I was completely miserable. Because, you know, the commercial theater, particularly a Broadway theme, seemed, particularly at that time, super crass. And it didn't feel like it was challenging and finances were difficult and there was like an incredible recession that I graduated into. And I essentially said, you know what? I love theater, but I'm going to leave it. I want to do something that is of necessary consequence. And I thought being a doctor would do that.
0: What kind of doctor did you want to be? I wasn't
1: quite sure. Maybe emergency room. I had a hilarious uh, scene where, you know, at 22, it was rare, but I got invited to this really fancy dinner. And so many of my different idols were there, including Joanne Akalitis, who's a huge luminary of the theater. And I met her and I met uh, George Wolfe is there. And like, all oh, these people are there and they happened to be sitting at my table. And coincidentally, someone uh, from down the table was like, how are you doing? Because I hadn't seen him for half a year. And I was like, oh, things are good. He's like, are you still thinking about leaving the theater? And there was, like, an awkward pause. Like, suddenly everyone at the table heard and looked at me, and I was (laughs) like— Gasp. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people were, like, totally freaked out. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking about becoming a doctor. And it was just like, (gasps) like, they couldn't believe it, right? And it was really at that moment that I recognized, you know, this has been a beautiful experience for me, but I did want to find something else. And what was wild was I ended up doing exhibition design— as a day job,
0: How? How does one go about getting an exhibition job as a day job?
1: Well, I was a really good drafter. And I had a friend who worked at Applebaum and she recommended me. I started as an intern. I was taking all these science classes to start medical school. And I was making my way through that program and in parallel working at Applebaum, drafting away, pitching crazy theater ideas in exhibition formats. And I fell into this very funny spot where I was ostensibly smart enough and sharp enough that they would throw me in front of the client.
0: Especially in Africa.
1: Well, that was it. Like, and, <laughs> But I wasn't so senior that I wasn't indispensable because they had to give me up for two months so that I could live in Africa and do all this work. So,
0: so essentially you're sort of doing one of your dream jobs during the day. Your day job yeah. is doing exhibition design in Africa mm-hmm. for Ralph Applebaum. Yep. And you are also on the side thinking about your medical studies. Exactly. What changes what what happens to completely reorganize how you 're going to spend the rest of your life
1: yeah, so during the time in Africa, it was kind of amazing. Uh, the trip was incredible actually quite legendary within the museum itself because of its expeditions there. We were sent from the capital of the Central African Republic to a small forest preserve eight hours away. What was the
0: exhibition going to be about?
1: So this is the exhibition. The hall is still around. It's called Biodiversity. Oh, And the central habitat...
0: (laughs) Just did a little day job in Africa. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
1: exactly. Uh, And the central habitat was a central African rainforest. And so we collected trees and we collected all these little animals Uh, and reptiles. And we did all these different studies in terms of different cinematic landscapes to put into the diorama. Midway through all of this work, we're out in the middle of the jungle, I mean, like far, far away from any type of, you know, quote unquote, civilization. We hear, you know, second or third hand that there's been a revolution in the capital and that there's no way that we can actually get out. It's
0: the year of living dangerously. Yeah,
1: exactly. What was particularly funny is, I mean, you can't imagine a more sedate spot. There's just elephants. There was really no danger whatsoever, but we actually couldn't get out. And the museum, I don't know how they did this, but somehow they hired a diamond smuggler who had a Cessna and who shuttled us back and forth in daily trips, like over a six-day period to Cameroon, where we eventually made our way out. And it was actually in that plane trip where I was thinking, oh, i got to go back, and I have to take organic chemistry. And then I was like, I have to be crazy. Like, this is great. And that was the moment where I thought to myself, you know, being a doctor was great. It helped me refocus my identity. But I think, you know, I can do really interesting stuff and really help people or make a change in the world through design.
0: So then in 2001, after seven years, you quit Applebaum Associates Mm -hmm. and simultaneously launched local projects while at the same time getting a master's degree from NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program. That's right. So you don't ever do anything like half fast. No, you? apparently
1: not. <laughs> I mean, I really—it was a jump off a cliff.
0: So what made you decide to start your own company while you were actually going to school?
1: Well, uh, having worked at Applebaum, I knew that graduation day would come, and basically my line, even to my uh, new wife at the time, I was like, you know, either when I graduated, oh, so got
0: married as well. I got at married. That moment. Yeah, okay, right at the cool, moment. Cool. Yeah, just do it trifecta. all
1: trifecta. Yeah, apparently. Um, So I decided, you know, when I graduate, I'll either get a job or I'll already have jobs. And I thought, you know, if I can graduate with clients, I'm very conservative, but, you know, I'll be able to launch the company and feel some stability.
0: Had you saved money to do this? Did you have a business plan? No. Did you have any existing clients from Applebaum that were interested in working with you? No.
1: No, it was just a hunch that these things would somehow come together. I mean, it was pretty clear that Technology was starting to really transform really fast. And I also had a sort of recurring obsession with having groups of people tell stories. I thought to myself, if I can go to grad school, learn the skills and actualize some of my crazy ideas myself, I'll have some shot of actually being able to make them what I want them to be. And in fact, that was really the main impulse to even go and to even start the company. It was this impulse and frustration of having these great ideas but having to constantly give them over to producers to actually make real. I mean, it was it was literally, and this you don't associate with digital, but it was wanting the same type of full control in a craft way that a graphic designer has, that letterpress has, et cetera. Like I, I really felt the constraints of having to create concepts and pass them off to people. So I thought, well, all right, fine, I'll go to grad school and I'll start a company. I can do that. And then once that was happening, then we had all these other ideas in terms of how to – you know, change or make changes within that field.
0: How would you describe your business to somebody that wasn't familiar with the kind of work that you do?
1: Typically, I say that we're media designers and that we use everything from iPhone applications to multi-projector installations, mostly for museums and public spaces.
0: So your first job with or at local projects was in July of 2001 Mm -hmm. when you collaborated with graphic designer Nancy Nowacek Mm -hmm. to create Memory Maps, Mm -hmm. which was a part of an exhibition about New York in the Smithsonian's Folklife Festival. That's right. So what was that like to hit the floor running, get this project with the Smithsonian with a graphic designer? How did you collaborate? How did you begin to unravel what was going to become your business? So we had
1: these early notions that we wanted to tell the story of New York City not from a curator standpoint or an editor or even a writer standpoint, but from the standpoint of creating essentially a platform for people to tell their own stories. And so if you think about New York and you think about the level of investment and ownership, the love really that people put into their identity as a New Yorker. I mean not only do people self-identify as New Yorkers with such incredible – pace and passion, but also then there's all the arguments about who gets to call themselves a New Yorker and when they get to call themselves a New Yorker. So that sparked a conversation for us about, well, if we're going to make an exhibit about New York and it was one of the cultures for Smithsonian, we should just ask New Yorkers to tell New York stories. That's how we're going to define what New York is.
0: So more than 2,000 people ended up posting their tales.
1: Yeah, it was so incredibly popular they had to go through and harvest because they had so many stories they couldn't actually read them at a certain point. But the experience was really – it was kind of treacherous because the curators were in an utter panic. I think actually only the fact that we were basically doing it for free was the only reason that they greenlit it because it was unheard of at that time to launch an exhibit with no content. That just seemed crazy. It seemed like an, an insane liability to them. And in fact, when we first launched, they were very, very nervous. What are these stories going to be like and who's going to say and why would visitors write stories and you know the, all the – type of anxiety that you can imagine. And it was an interesting shift in the paradigm because, first of all, not just did visitors show up, they showed up in force, and it became one of the most popular parts of the exhibition. But even beyond that, we found that people were connecting with each other through the exhibition. And that's a very, very radical notion when you think about what can an exhibit do. An exhibit's there to tell a story, an exhibit's there to educate, learn, maybe provide a place for families to talk to themselves or to dates to chat. But you don't really think about it as a catalyst for essentially a civic action, which is what happens when strangers start to point to a map and say, oh, wait, you went to Midwood? I went to Midwood High School too, but probably you were, we were like 20 years apart, etc. It became a very non-New York experience because it gave all these strangers permission to talk to each other.
0: Yeah, it's a safe place for visitors to just interact.
1: That's exactly right.
0: You talk a lot about storytelling And you're considered an innovator in the field of interaction design for physical spaces as well as the creation of what you call collaborative storytelling. What does that mean to tell a story collaboratively?
1: So I think that collaborative storytelling to a certain extent has always existed in any massively shared experience. And so you think about getting married. You think about being born or the birth of a child. Like so many people have stories about these seminal transitions – It's just that they've never been necessarily collected or aggregated or shared or combined. And you put together that shape with events like 9-11. And so collaborative storytelling becomes a space in which you can simultaneously look at the shape of so many of these stories put together, but never lose the texture of each individual narrative, and that the entire project become an invitation to its participants to share their own experiences. And part of, I think, what we're learning is that people are not just expecting but really desiring to share themselves. And in the same way that you might go to the Lincoln Memorial and fulfill your experience by having your picture taken there, or you might go to the Vietnam Memorial and do a rubbing so that you can remember that moment by having done something, I think that shape is also creating these new moments for collaborative storytelling. So I want to go to the 9-11 Memorial, And I want a moment where you're asking me to reflect on the experience and to share my reflection. And I think that aspect, that ability to invite groups of people to share and reflect collectively and to create a platform so that you can start to aggregate and share and link these different stories together, that's what collaborative storytelling is.
0: What is it about storytelling that you find so compelling? So I think that there's
1: primal parts of our brain that organize the world within storytelling. And there's people who have written books about this, and they look at it from a genetic standpoint or from a neurology standpoint. But I think from my, stand, from my experience, it's just the pure pleasure of being able to both empathize with the people or the characters within a story— But to also understand that you're inside of almost something that you could be described as designed. It has a pattern to it. It has a shape to it. It has different highs and lows. And it sort of takes you on this journey into these unexpected places. And you put those two things together. And it suddenly becomes the great adventure of being someone else.
0: Oh, interesting. Humans have been telling stories since Lascaux. Yeah. So 35,000 years ago. Yeah. Why is – do you feel like that's – do you feel that storytelling is hardwired into our DNA as a species? Why do we love listening to stories and telling them ourselves?
1: I think that it's – that so much of what we crave as humans comes to us through stories and that can involve rehearsing for an event in the future that hasn't yet happened – really struck by children's books and the way that some parents say oh that book is too scary for my child or you know uh, charlotte's web i mean it's it's a really really deeply sad story about the sacrifice and love of a friend for another friend and it can be quite traumatic for children but it is the rehearsal for the life that you will certainly lead
0: Why are Disney stories so intensely sad as well? I mean, the first time I ever saw The Lion King, I wept. Yeah. I I mean, the, the, the father is stampeded. Yeah. How is that even possible that children can enjoy something like that?
1: Well, I think that's what's amazing. There's actually a story that I heard from Walt Disney's daughter. So she's involved with the Eisenhower Memorial. And she said that she was in the original test audience shown to Disney staff before it even went out for Snow White and she totally melted down at the at the queen she was so incredibly frightening even as she was riveting but she yourself said this is a safe place because it's a story
0: you mentioned the Eisenhower Memorial and there's a quote that I read that you said about working on the Eisenhower Memorial you said there's an awareness that for history in general maybe even for Eisenhower specifically we have a generation that doesn't necessarily know about the historic events that have shaped how our nation works today. And I'm wondering why there is this sense of a lack of knowledge about historic events as we grow as a culture. Is there an innate need to forget certain things? Is that why we need these memorials? Is there a sense that if we aren't able to remind ourselves with something that's very physical, that it will no longer exist? I'm wondering how you feel about the notion of making these memorials to essentially honor these extremely difficult moments in our humanity.
1: There's this amazing quote that memorials are the promises that we make to future generations.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> so the way
1: in which we say at a the height of a tragic event, you say, never again, we shouldn't forget. I mean, that's the promise. That's the lesson that you can learn. And you think about the more difficult, tragic, horrific moments in history, in human history, that really is, I think, the best that we can imagine. And so that's a lot of what it is. But I think that there is something in America that is interested in turning to the fresh new space and not actually recalling the past and not necessarily really embedding ourselves within the aggregate of human history. And that, I think, is really interesting where you can hopefully have an effect on the nation, and you can say, This will actually provide you with a little more understanding of why things are the way they are, because it's definitely a human trait to take the world at face value as a foregone conclusion because we experience it. Right? So you think about the city of New York, and you think to yourself, If you really thought about it objectively, you'd never build Manhattan where Manhattan is, it's an island. Like, why would you put all the important stuff where you can't get it, right? But that was just a series of choices. And in fact, it happened that the original island that uh, the original settlers went to, the Dutch, didn't like it so much. And so they ended up on the southern tip of Manhattan. And that begat everything that we live within today. All of these small choices led to this incredible metropolis with this very specific shape and characteristic. And so much of our world is like that. And I think within Eisenhower specifically, if you think – to yourself, what would Eisenhower and our world have been like if he had failed on D-Day? Right? What that that was that was real. Like you can't watch enough World War II movies to convince me that it was a foregone conclusion we would win because it definitely was not.
0: Whatever is
1: exactly, and so. When you think to yourself, and that's the moment that we want people to actually be inside of, is not the standard historian's overview of, and here's what happened. We want people to be in the moment of, wow, is, is this really going to happen? Can we actually land for D-Day? Can we land? Let's just start with that. And then can we actually bulge out from there and take a position and actually start to turn the tide on World War II? Because that's the moment of incredible drama and catharsis and anxiety, but also the moment where you realize it's real. We're going to win this war.
0: I want to talk with you about the National September 11th Memorial and the museum at the World Trade Center. When and how did you get that project?
1: It's almost in my own sort of personal sphere. Like it's a little bit of an epic story in and of itself. Oh, good. So I had, as you were saying, I'd worked at Applebaum for seven years. And Ralph Applebaum, he really was my mentor. And I mm-hmm. learned so much, everything up to that point from him and from that firm, left, went to grad school, started local projects. I had done StoryCorps and had been in some conversations uh, with an exhibition design firm called Think Design, And they were invited – to be one of the 16 firms to compete for the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And so they invited us to partner, and that was incredibly prestigious in and of itself. And we immediately started in on this idea that I had started with StoryCorps about collaborative storytelling. And essentially, at the kernel, at the beginning of our pitch, was this idea that the heart of the museum should be stories directly from people who experienced history on that day, and that the voice of the museum shouldn't be a curatorial voice, shouldn't be a historian's voice, but should be as raw and authentic as the site itself. And so we came in with this pitch, had some conversations, and then there was a design charrette. And they had whittled it at this point to three firms, us, a French firm, and then Ralph Applebaum Associates. And this is where it got both very personal and very epic simultaneously because I was suddenly up against my mentor in a moment of exceptional discomfort. Uh, And to a certain extent, personal sacrifice. Ralph didn't talk to me for literally years after that. Really? It was a challenging time. And I think that, you know, he uh, really saw it as a potential legacy project. And I think it was really hard for him to to compete against someone who had essentially grown up in his studio. Um, But what ended up happening was, We were so focused on the idea but knew that it was highly unorthodox to think about a museum as a platform, a space where people would go to tell their own stories, a space where the stories would feel assembled and arguably curated but not edited and not told through the curator's voice. And so I kept saying, you know, we are absolutely the underdogs. There's no upside to choosing a small, tiny, unknown group of firms So we have to make the idea both so compelling but so real that they would actually be willing to take a chance on us. And so we had this design shred, It was two weeks total. And within that time, we produced a four-minute fly-through. And if you've ever made those types, they typically take about four months. And I remember at probably the second or maybe the third all-nighter when we were rendering, it just seemed totally cuckoo that we had taken on – that level of production. But I think that was one of the cornerstones of why we ended up landing the project because it was no longer just theoretical. And so many of the core ideas that we are actually employing in the museum were in that original fly-through. You would walk through and you would hear individual patches of stories as you would navigate the overarching story itself. And you, the visitor, would start to connect together the patterns. And through that, you would understand both the shape of 9-11, but also that you were hearing it directly from these authentic witnesses to history.
0: I was reading about your experience and was fascinated by what I read about the pre-design process and how you decided which pieces to include. Um, I understand you made a visit to Hangar 17 at JFK Airport, where many artifacts from the September 11 attacks had been warehoused. And one official in charge of the objects had a very apt description of the objects, and he said everything here is ugly and everything here is beautiful how are you able to handle the project emotionally
1: it's very very challenging uh, frankly i mean at this point we're we're through a lot of the tough stuff uh but i think honestly the hardest people that it's on are really the people inside of the museum both because they're in it uh like we are for the long haul but it's really all that they do and that's much harder. It's much easier for us to cope because we get to jump between different projects. I came home one day from work, and and uh, Jenny, my wife, was like, "You know, fr- frankly, you don't you don't look so good. Are you okay?" And I was like, oh, it was a hard day." I was like, "You know, I did nine eleven for four hours, uh, and then I had like a back to back right into the Holocaust, and then I had two hours in global warming." She was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> you've you've got to get some new clients. What's the matter with you?"
0: Well, it's interesting. In one of your online presentations, you ask a question I'd like to pose to you, and you say, why does it take a crisis for us to collaborate together on common goals?
1: It's such a challenge. Uh, It's amazing to see that when things are really bad, people can turn to each other, but there's so many motivations to keep people apart from each other. I think that's one thing that's been interesting about the museum is that they've gone full circle from really viewing with a Apt suspicion and anxiety about participation, meaning again, there's a lot of good reasons to not collaborate, right? There's liability, there's the quality of the stories of the work that you'll get, there's the fact that it is additional work. It's far easier to just go out and do two interviews than to conduct thousands. But within that, they started to see the logic that it's not a technique, it is a commitment. When you're gathering that many stories, when you're opening up yourself as a museum, as a platform, it's a commitment to conversation and to collaboration. And it doesn't just create an amazing exhibit experience, although I I truly believe it does. It literally changes the institution because you're making a commitment to your visitors in a way that, again, it's more expensive and it is more work and it's more liability. But you're saying to each visitor that comes in, you matter. And, and how you respond to the story is part of the story. And why nine eleven happened is important, and we'll talk about that. And what happened on that day is important. We're also going to talk about that. But what you're feeling right now about 9-11 and what type of effect or insight it gives us for the future, that's also very important. And it's important because it's about you, and you're going to take that out into the world. And so making that commitment to your visitor and to their visitor experience, allowing them the types of exhibition experiences that help them fulfill their own thoughts and feelings and connections with it. It's a very, very deep commitment. But when you do it right, it suddenly creates a museum that I think can be truly transformative.
0: Do you think that transforming or healing a community or a neighborhood or a city through this type of storytelling is going to become a prerequisite or a mandate for museums moving forward?
1: I think it's a technique that when used for the right subject or story can be incredibly effective. I I certainly don't think that any technique is a foregone conclusion. I mean, everything is about the individual opportunities, the client, the, the audience, and what you can do with those things put together. So we have no house style and nothing that we apply directly. But I do feel like People are hungry to connect and to participate, and there's a really strong argument to be made that if you want people to care about something, whatever your topic is, you need to make that topic about them. You need to create a space or a story that explains to them why this matters to them personally, and part of doing that could be gathering stories and connecting them with other people.
0: Between StoryCorps and the 9-11 Museum and Memorial, you have helped gather over 100,000 individual stories and memories, sharing them with the world and touching millions of lives. But you've also said that you think that there are big limitations with specific cultural institutions and also with specific narratives. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think those limitations are.
1: I think one of the big challenges that we all face are the limitations just of broadcast media in and of itself? I love television. I grew up on television. Movies are incredible and books are you know, sublime and transformational. But I think there is a real instinct into participation, into being able to make things collectively, into being able to participate and to put your own stamp or spin or connection into a larger project. And so I think one of the limitations that we face is institutions that are are stakeholders and that keep the flame for incredible narratives or experiences and how they can then turn those into these larger platforms for participation.
0: Do you feel that that collective participation does anything to accuracy or to objectivity?
1: I think that... There are massive liabilities in any of these participation projects, and accuracy is a huge part of it. Oral histories are called oral history because they're not history. They are memory. And that has been proven over and over again to be radically fallible.
0: Yes, How do you deal with that in presenting narratives that are collective? How do you deal with the fact that somebody's memory of something that very well may be real to them might not actually be real?
1: So what ends up happening is that typically in these types of experiences, we'll gather en masse the stories and make them available. And then certain stories that are vetted and that stand in for the individual experiences of the collective end up getting curated or edited or shared specifically by an institution. So, for example, we have these memory chambers for the 9-11 Memorial Museum, and they're really the heart of the historic exhibition – they tell the experiences of people inside the buildings themselves and what it was like to be in the building. If you think about 9-11, you think about, in your head, you picture the two buildings from afar, typically you know, with the, the smoke pouring out of the top. That's the sort of paradigm, that's the icon that I would say 99% of us have in our head. And that's because that was the shot that they got on that day. There wasn't actual video footage from inside the towers itself. So interestingly enough... You had this event that for particularly people our age, it's this seminal, uh, unmistakable mark in our memory, and yet we can't remember what actually happened because nothing, no media was necessarily captured inside the towers. And so the way that we solved that in the museum is to make these spaces for oral histories and to gather together all these different stories and edit them together into a essentially an audio collage of what it was like to turn and to see a smudge out of the southern part of the sky and then to see it come closer closer and to recognize that it was a second plane and then to see that you could see the logo on the fin as the plane actually went into the tower and then you hear someone else say it was like the building got punched and then someone else says the whole thing's falling over and the ceiling's caving in and then another person says and then I felt the floor Go underneath me and I thought it would just keep going and so you put those together and suddenly you have this moment of understanding I think that at least I didn't before I was working on the project of what it was actually like to be in the towers at that time which of course thousands of people were and you have it in a way that doesn't feel like someone is trying to frame it for you necessarily and it's certainly not a recreation And in some ways, it's safe because you're hearing people like, you know, that these are, you know, interviews after the event itself. So we went through a lot of explorations as to how to frame that so that you could give visitors the information and the stories that really frame the true story and the full story of that day. But do it in a way that is safe and generous and that makes sense for the institution where it is.
0: Jake, my last question for you um, is in regard to a recent lecture that you made at SVA's Design Criticism Program. You started it with a quote by writer, actor, and performance artist Anna DeVere Smith, and you stated, each person has a literature inside them. What's yours?
1: That's a very generous question. I would hope that the optimism that I have in terms of finding just common voices and common experiences and applying them to these bigger moments within history would be my literature. But I think it's really a rare—what we try and do or what I try and do is to mix together these core, fundamental, and enduring truths and stories with new technologies and new ways for people to think about them and to share in them. And that, to me, is literature, when you can make something that isn't just predicated on technology or on innovation, but that really gets you into a new understanding of a core human experience. And so if I can do that on any individual project, much less the, the group of work that we've done, then I'll be incredibly happy.
0: Thank you, Jake. Thank you, so much. To learn more about Jake Barton, head over to localprojects.net. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie
1: Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by
0: designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.